Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at this chapter and, and examine a great chapter of grace in the middle of this book. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 36. And as we said in the prayer, this is a wonderful grace-oriented chapter in the middle of all these uh, curses and, and all that that's going on. And we're getting closer to the end. We're going to see more and more focus on the millennial kingdom and the after uh, the eternal so verse, chapter 36, verse 1. Also you, son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because the enemy has said against you, Aha, even the ancient high places are ours in possessions. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, because you, they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, that you might be a possession unto the residue of the heathen, and you are taken up upon the lips of the talkers and are in, in infamy to the people. Therefore, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys, to the desolate waste and to the cities that are forsaken and which became a prey and derision to the residue of the heathen that are around about. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the residual of the heathen and against all the Indumia which have appointed my land unto their possession with the joy of all their heart, with despiteful minds to cast it out for prey. Prophesy, therefore, concerning the land of Israel, and say unto the mountains, and to the hills, and to the rivers, and to the valleys, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury, because you have borne the shame of the heathen. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I have lifted up my hand. Surely the heathen that are, all, are about you, they shall bear their shame. So we're going to look at this. And remember, Israel's gone into captivity. And here is God's prophecy to him. And it's, his prophecy is literally to the land. Not even to the people. This, as you read this chapter, you'll see that his prophecy is literally for the land which he has claimed to be his land. Uh, he says, I have loved Jerusalem. I have, you know, and he doesn't always seem to be referring to just the people. And as we find out later on, he's going to say, I'm blessing you, but in spite of the people, I'm blessing you. And so he says, here, Israel, the land, it says, because the enemy has said, against you, aha. You know, and this word aha, we've talked about this in various times in the Psalms and everything. It is a cry of joy at another's misfortune. And so this is, this is the neighbors of Israel that when they went into captivity, they rejoiced. And Edom, which is named in this section in, uh, Edel, Ed, <coughs> I have to read it because I can never, Ed, Edumia, uh, that is another word for Edom, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And they rejoiced, and they said, okay, the land's going to be ours. And they took it for a while, while, while they were in captivity. And it says, your enemies have rejoiced. Therefore, they are going to be punished. And this is something we need to be careful of as Christians ourselves, is if, if somebody who is, we consider an enemy or has given us a hard time suffers, because of their sin, we do not want to be rejoicing. 
because God brings back that, re that rejoicing spirit of somebody's affliction back on us. And because God is not looking for us to rejoice. God's not rejoicing when he gives discipline to these nations. His heart is that all will spend eternity with him. So he doesn't rejoice. Oh, this, I, get to, I get to smash this person. I get to smash this nation. That is not God's attitude. It's more like I've got to do this to them because of their disobedience is so bad. They need and must be disciplined. And you know, our desire must be for when people are suffering, to pray for them, to try to encourage them, even if they totally deserve what they get. Because all of us deserve bad things. You know, in, in reality, if we really understand who we are, we deserve to be punished. Just because our punishment doesn't seem to be as bad as somebody else's activities, we still deserve punishment and not the grace that God gives us. And it says, even the ancient high places are ours in, in possession. And this is what the Edomites were saying. <coughs> Excuse me. They're saying, Israel has been judged, and we get to have the land. And when they talk about the ancient places, they're talking about uh, Jerusalem, the, uh, the cave of uh, Abraham, and all these things that are in there, the ancient places, the places that are celebrated. And they're saying, all that belongs to Israel is now ours. And they rejoiced. You know, basically, they're saying they got what they deserved. And you know what? They did get what they deserved, but they shouldn't have been rejoicing about them getting what they deserved. Israel has been sinning over and over that we've talked about many times in this book. They, they worshipped idols. They did not celebrate the, the, the year of rest upon the land. They kept chasing after idols in spite of all God's correction. And God says, fine, you're going to be taken out. And the people around them rejoiced. Verse 3 says, Therefore prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, that they might be in possession unto the residual of the heathen, and you are taken up in the lips of the talkers and are an infamy of the people. So here he's talking about how bad things were with them. He says, They have made you desolate. They have swallowed you up. Nebuchadnezzar takes them away and their neighbors rejoice. And then they go after and, and take what little is left to make a desolation. But I kind of like this. You're swallowed up on every side. That you might be a possession of the residual of the heathen. And then this kind of poetic language. And you are taken up on the lips of the talkers. In other words, you're being gossiped about. Everybody's talking about you. How bad you were and you got what you deserved and all of this. And you are an infamy of the people, an evil report, a, a defamation. Um, you know, not, infamy is not a word that we use very often. Uh, you know, the famous one was when the president said that Pearl Harbor was a day that would live in infamy, an evil report. report. You know, it's, it was so bad that it's going to live forever. And the sad thing is, we live in a generation that barely knows anything about Pearl Harbor and how bad it was. And, uh, but anyway, he says, you're, you're being talked about. You're, you're infamous amongst the people. They think you know, they're talking about that. And it says, verse 4, Therefore, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys and to the desolate waste and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey to the derision of the residue of the heathen that are found about. So in other words, they came in and they spoiled the land. 
and they really did spoil the land. They took they took what they would wanted and destroyed things and and made it a desolate waste. And God is speaking to the land, I will restore the land. Now he's going to later on talk to the people and say he's going to restore them as well. But he says, I am going to restore the land. And you know, the funny thing is, in today's world, Israel's land has been restored not quite as much as he's going to say that it's going to get to. But they're the breadbasket of, of, of Europe and, and produce more food and everything from that little tiny land country than just about any place in the whole world. And probably more than any place in America for, you know, if you went per, per acre, they have been blessed. God has restored them. And he's going to keep restoring them until they get to the picture that he's using on here of the end days and the, and the millennial kingdom and, and all of that. But he says, I'm going to restore the land. The land is no longer going to be desolate. And you know, this kind of an interesting thing. Verse 5 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the residual of the heathen and against the Indumia, which have appointed their land and my land into their possession with the joy of all their heart and despiteful minds to cast it out for prey. So he says, In my jealousy, in my jealousy, this is God's land. And again, we think about this, all the places that God says, Jerusalem is mine, the land is mine. And God has some affinity to Jerusalem for whatever reason. And I don't know what it is. He has picked Jerusalem to be the place that he has planned to sit. He's going to reign for eternity from Jerusalem. And the new heaven and new earth of Jerusalem come down, and he reigns from Jerusalem for eternity. For the millennial kingdom, he's going to rule from Jerusalem. It is the capital of Israel, in spite of all the controversy that's being put into that in our day and age. It is the capital of Israel. It has been the capital of Israel since David's day and will always be their capital. And God says, in my jealousy, I have spoken against the remaining part of the heathen and against the Edomites who have claimed my land. And you know what's really bad about this land, that the fact that they claimed Israel, is if you remember... Back in Deuteronomy, when Israel was going to cross through their land, they said, no, you can't. And God said, leave their land alone. They are, they are a near kinsmen. So they went all the way around Edom. And then Edom comes along hundreds of years later, maybe even a thousand or, you know, and a half. And they rejoice that Israel has been taken and claim that it is their land and really gets God angry at them because he has shown them grace. He allowed them to have land and not take it away from them, and then they treat his people with disrespect. So this is, this is quite an interesting thing that God is saying. He goes, you know, they took that possession with joy in their heart and with despiteful minds. Or, you know, the whole idea of contempt. They were contemptuous of Israel. They were contemptuous of the remaining part of Israel. And remember, we've talked about this. When Nebuchadnezzar took the people out, when they took the last exile out, he left just the poorest of the poor in the land. There were Jewish people in the land, but they were ones that didn't know how to run businesses. They didn't, even, you know, they didn't know how to do much of anything because they lost whatever they had, and they were not very good at handling anything and basically lost everything as they got taken in. 
And then we, re if you remember, they intermarried with the foreign races that were put in that land, and that formed what were later on become the Samaritans, which the Jews looked at and said, "You're not even Jews. You're you're half breeds. You know, we would rather we would rather deal with Gentiles than with you half breeds because you should have known better, and you intermarried with the Gentiles and and made yourself worse off than just being a Gentile." Uh, and it's kind of funny because Jews, even to this day, when some when they're have a family member who gets married to a non-Jewish person, or worse yet, they become a Christian or something, they will disown, hold a, hold a funeral for that, that wayward child. That child is dead, as far as they're concerned. And it goes all the way back to this whole idea of... But that's mainly the Orthodox. Well, yeah, the Orthodox. So it's You're, you're better to be a Gentile than a half-breed, or even worse than that is a person who has turned their back on Judaism. As, as Amy says, in our day and age, Orthodox Jews are the ones that do this. Uh, the rest of them are just Jews in name only, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, the Orthodox are supposed to be trying to follow God. But he says, you have taken my people, and you rejoiced in doing it, and you cast it out for a prey. Verse 6 says, Prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel, and say unto the mountains, and to the hills, and to the rivers, and to the valleys, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury, or extreme anger, because you have borne the shame of the heathen. Okay? They bore shame. The land bore the shame, as right now is what he's talking about. But Israel bears the shame, and the land is bearing the shame. He goes, because you have borne shame, I am angry. You know, and we think, picture this. You know, any father, if they see their child being abused, gets angry about it. Now, they may control their anger and everything, but this is God. His land, his people have been shamefully treated. And it draws his anger. Verse 7, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have lifted up my hand. Surely the heathen that are about you, they shall bear their shame. You know, and this is, we've said this many times, sin has consequences. And when somebody, even if they're not God's child, commits a sin or hurts his children, there is a consequence for that action. And they will bear the consequences for it. Now, usually we as humans go, God, you're working too slow. I got hurt yesterday and I expected to be, you to take care of it that same day. And God says, no, I'm going to give them time. I'm going to give them time to repent. I'm going to give them time to come, you know, to come back. And you know, we're we're like God, just smash them, hurry up and smash them. You know, David said that many times in the Psalms. You know, God, you know, you know, you're you're awfully slow. Why why are you so slow? You know, why why are they being so successful? And God's saying they'll get theirs. They will get their they will get their consequences of their sins. And here's God says they will get their consequences. They're going to bear their shame. It's funny, David's enemies destroyed. David was very well known for his precatory prayers. God, go get them. He understood grace to a degree, and he loved grace, but he went toward his enemies. He didn't want any grace. Grace didn't apply, grace didn't apply to his enemies as far as he was concerned. But, you know, having said that, how many of us as Christians do the same thing? God, thank you for all the grace and forgiveness. I go, go get that person. You know, yeah, go, well, go get that person. They're, 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 not, they're not a nice person. They're... they're you know, God, I know you forgave me of almost the same thing. Mine wasn't quite as bad, but you, you forgave me, but go get them. And we tend to do that a lot. Not forgive, not give grace, not... For everybody that's not a Christian. You know. 
we're acting just like a non-Christian in our, in our attitude, and we're not taking what God gives us and applying it to others. And this is why the Bible's full of this whole lessons. When you're given grace, he expects you to give grace. When you're forgiven, he expects you to forgive. Like the yeah, the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven billions of dollars worth of debt and then went after somebody that owed him a month's worth of wages, you know, $100. And God's anger at him was, I forgave you, you can't forgive him. You know, and, you can, and his point was in real comparison. I forgave you of everything and you're not even forgiving him of something that you can't even pay back and you won't even forgive him for something that is... You know, it may take him a little time, but he'll be able to pay back. You know, and we do this a lot to one another. And we've got to be very careful about this and really start looking, God, what, is it, what have you done for me? And then pay that back to people. And that means be gracious when they don't deserve grace, because if they deserve grace, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is a free gift, and people need to be given grace. They need to be given forgiveness. And not waiting for them to ask for forgiveness like so many people want to say, well, when they ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive them. No, you won't because you're not even talking to them. And you're not going to be willing to. If you're not willing to forgive them, they will never be able to ask. And even if they did, you probably would not hear the request. You know, so we need to be very careful. And God is saying to them, they're going to bear their shame eventually. And as we said, at the very end, even if it's the white throne judgment at some point, they will suffer for what they've done. It may be eternity. But, you know, we've also said so many times, people are suffering more than we even realize in many cases. We think they've got their whole world put together, and they're suffering, and we just don't see it. And if we were just showing them some love and grace and mercy, maybe we'd be able to see them come to Christ in the process. And that's why God says, you know, I have loved you. And First John, he says, you love me because I, because I first loved you. We would not love God if he didn't first love us. And sometimes that's what it takes to reach people, is just to show them love and kindness. Verse 8, but you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you and I will turn unto you. And you shall be tilled and sown, and you will multiply men, and I will multiply men upon you. All the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be built. And I will multiply men unto you, and I will multiply to you men and beasts, and they shall increase and bring fruit. And I will settle you after your old estates, and will do better unto you than in your beginnings. And you shall know that I am the Lord, yea, I will cause men to walk upon you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and, their, and you shall no more henceforth bereave them of men. Thus saith the Lord God, because they say, the land devours up men, and has bereaved your nations, therefore I shall devour, and you shall devour men no more. Neither bereave your nations any more, says the Lord. Neither will I cause men to hear in you the shame of the heathen any more. Neither shall you bear the reproach of the people any more. Neither shall you cause your nations to fall any more. Thus saith the Lord God. All right. So here we continue with God talking to the land. And this is why I said, because we've got to a section here where he starts talking about the people. 
He is literally talking to the land in this prophecy. And you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that maybe there's something more to these statements sometimes when God says, you know, that the land will, the land will bless, the trees clap their hands. You know, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees when they said, stop these guys from praising you because they're blaspheming. And Jesus said, if they were quiet, the rocks would shout out. You know, and I kind of wonder, is there something in that statement that there's something in nature deeper than what we realize? Some kind of thing, because God is speaking literally to the land and saying, you have been shamed by this. What shame did they receive as we get further in this? The shame of the way the Israelites gave them. The, the shame of what the Canaanites and Jebusites and Hittites were doing to them when God punished them and kicked them out of the land and brought Israel in and said, Israel, you're to worship me in this land. And then Israel stopped worshiping God and God kicked them out. But in Israel and the land, oftentimes the land was punished. They would have famines. They would have droughts. The, the land itself was punished because of their disobedience. That there is a lot of times where God curses the land, and the land was designed and built and to produce food for man. Then Adam and Eve sinned, and it said, thorns and thistles will it produce, and it won't give you the abundance of its energy anymore. And then Cain sinned and killed his brother, and God says, uh, even you won't get hardly anything. You're, you're not going to be getting anything out of the land because you know, now you're doubly cursed on the land. This world has been turned upside down because of man's sin. Paul in the New Testament says that the whole world groans in anticipation of the, of the new heaven and earth because of how much it has suffered. Man sinned, everything in creation fell with him. And that's a pretty amazing thought, that everything fell. The land produced everything it needed for, for man. The animals were at total peace with one another. Man sinned and, they, and the ground started growing thorns and thistles, not giving up its, its strength. The animals that you know, ended up starting to be hunters of one another. Uh, you know, all these things that happened because of man's sin. And we see all of creation, the earthquakes, the terrible storms, all these things that don't belong to this world, all because man sinned. And God brings that sin upon man, and he's using the world to help bring the punishments upon man. And, you know, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, Paul said the, the world is groaning, and all of nature groans, and I'm wondering, is there something literal about that? I don't want to take that too far, because then that gets you into this whole worshiping of, of land and things and stuff, and that goes too far the other direction. But is there something more to God's statements on these? I don't know. Now let's see, verse 9. Behold, I am, I am for you and will turn unto you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and you will multiply men upon and I will on you all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the city shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be built. And so he says, these are the blessings he says. You're going to have people that are going to come back and they're going to till the ground. You know, Adam's first job that he was given was to be a farmer. God created this world to be farmed and taken care of by man. And Israel is desolate. The land is, is desolate. And God says, I'm going to send people. I'm going to send them. They're going to till you. And I will bring 
multiply the men, and the house, and all the house of Israel, even all of it, is going to be returned. And we're not there yet. But Israel became a nation, and they're getting more and more of the Jews returning all the time. And I think as we see more and more anti-Semitism occurring, we're more and more Jews going to Israel. God says all of you, all of them will be there. And, all, and there seems to be in the heart of most of the Jews that I've met this real desire not to live in Israel, they all want to go there. but they all want to go there. And then once they go there, they want to live there. You know, it's God has put this desire in their heart. They're his people. He said they're going to come back home, all of them, and eventually they will return because you're just raised in a certain way and Jews have maintained their Jewishness in spite of being scattered across the world, in spite of not having a temple to worship, they practice Passover and Yom Kippur and tabernacles, usually even if they don't practice anything else. Even the, even the non-Orthodox practice them. Now, they don't put the meaning behind them. They're just kind of like Americans celebrating Christmas and Easter. They're just events that are part of this nation, and they can tell you the stories behind it to a degree, but they don't believe them. We look at this and God says, I'm going to give you the blessings. I will multiply upon you men and they shall increase and you shall, in, <coughs> shall increase and bring fruit and I will settle you after your old estates and you, will be, and you will be better than at your beginnings and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Famous statement in Ezekiel, you shall know that I am. But he says, when you are restored things will be better than they were before. And I don't know how much that is true in today's Israel, but Israel is feeding the world, and that's producing a lot of stuff. They are leading in, in scientific techno and technology, and they lead in a lot of different areas, and God is blessing them in multiple ways. And as, as he's going to state later, in spite of themselves, he's not blessing them because of what they're doing right. He's blessing them because of what he said in this verse here, which goes all the way back to Abraham, where he says, this is your land. I'm giving it to your land, and it was without condition. God says, I'm giving it to you, into your seed. And now they're being brought back into their land, and God's saying, I'm going to bless you. You don't deserve it. You don't, you're, not even, you're not even recognizing me who's giving it to you, but you're going to be blessed. You know, we think about that, you know, if we can just apply some of that to us as Christians, what do we get from God that we do not deserve? Everything. <laughs> That's what I was going to get ready to say. Everything. You know, everything we get from God, we do not deserve. We still don't realize that. Though. We've got to start realizing it because until we realize in our own lives that we don't deserve anything from God, we will not treat others the way we're supposed to treat them. Because if there's anything in us that says, I'm getting what I deserve, God, you are just so lucky you have me, God, uh, because I do so many things right for you. And as long as that's in our mindset, we would be very judgmental of those who don't follow the way we think they should be following them. We get what we deserve on those ones. If we're ungodly, we will get what we deserve for those ones. But all the blessings we get, we don't deserve the blessings. This is why I've shared many times, when people say, why do bad things happen to good people? I, I will tell them, you've got the wrong question. Why do good things happen to all of us bad people? Because we are bad and we deserve 
nothing but bad, and yet God blesses. And he blesses not just his children, he blesses all the world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to the unjust, and it may, doesn't make any sense to us because they're not following God. You know, if we follow our, follow our way of thinking, they should have been dead, dead before they even got started. And yet God's saying, I'm going to bring goodness on them because I want them to see my love and my care. And his whole goal is to try to draw them to him. By being kind to them and giving them what they don't deserve, they should be drawn to him and saying there's something that is needed. And it says, Yea, I will cause men to walk on you, even my people of Israel. They shall possess you, and, they shall, and you shall be their inheritance. And you shall no more henceforth bereave them. And that is, of men doesn't really belong there, but to be childless or barren. The land, he says, you're not going to be barren. And this is kind of a strange thought. Again, is there something in this? And I just don't know what it is. I don't, I've never been quite able to put a finger on this as I've thought about this all week. The land seems to need the people, and the people need the land in a way that is special, and God's looking at it. He says the land needs something to take care of, and the people need to be taking care of the land. A symbiotic relationship. A symbiotic relationship in a very strong way. You know, God says we are to have dominion over the world. That, isn't, that doesn't mean we're to go around destroying the world. doesn't mean as far as what most green people believe, that we're destroying the world and all of this stuff. You know, because you look at the logging industry in, in uh, the Northwest. They have been taking down trees for many, many generations. And what they do, they, they cut the trees down and they plant new seeds, new trees, so that they can, in 20 or 30 years, harvest those ones. And they're on their second and third iteration of these trees that they're cutting down. They're having true dominion on the world and replacing what it is that they have used up. It's an amazing thing how God has worked things out in this world in spite of the fallen nature of our world. He's got things sitting, sitting in place that still work. We have cycles that aren't really nice, but God says it still works. Our nature can take care of itself which is one of the funny things when people talk about all this climate change problems. You know, In a cycle, it's, going, it's getting warmer, and I will agree it's getting warmer. Historically, it's always gotten warmer, and then it starts getting cold again. It's not, it's not a big deal. It's just the arrogance of man and, and how powerful we think we are in this thing that we don't look back over 800 years to see 800 years ago, we went through the same thing. 800 to 1,000 years ago, we went through the same thing, and we keep going back in this long cycle. And yet, we want to think somehow we are the one that causes all these problems. It doesn't mean go out and destroy nature, but it, it, it'll take care of itself. There's things that destroy, have destroyed more nature than anything man has done, you know, through, through volcanic activities and stuff like that, you know, and, and God lets it fix itself, and it does a good job. Verse 13, saith the Lord God, because they say unto you, you land devour up man and have bereaved your nations. So in other words, they're saying the land itself was bad. The land itself is what they're saying. The land was so bad that you destroyed your nation. Therefore, the, you shall devour men no more. Neither bereave your nations anymore, says the Lord God. So it says you're going to be blessed. They're not going to be able to say this to you anymore, that you're, you're a bad land. And, uh, you know, this is kind of an interesting thought. You know, I can't even imagine this, but they've, 
there are places where people say they're just so bad that people cannot live there. And God made them a desolate, desolate place so that people weren't living there. We've got places like the Sahara Desert, which is pretty barren. Nobody really lives there. They can pass through it, but they don't live there. And God says, that was your reputation. I'm going to make it so that you are not going to have that reputation anymore. You're going to be a fruitful land. Neither will I cause men to hear in you the shame of the heathen anymore. Neither shall, they bear the re- shall you bear the reproach of the people anymore. Neither shall you cause your nation to fall anymore, says the Lord. In other words, there's not going to be any more famines and, and harshness with you. This is quite a blessing that he's putting on the land, not, not the people, on the land itself when they come back. But God seems to be saying, land, you're going to be blessed. The people are going to be de- developed, you know, symbiotic, I guess, is a good word for it. You know, it's you know, beyond and above what it, what it should be. Because land, you need the people. People, you need the land that I've blessed. And, we're, you know, it's a wonderful thing that we see. God's saying, I'm going to give this to you. And you're going to take away your reproach. Because the land suffered. You know, think about this. How often, you know, the land suffered when Adam and Eve sinned. Several times in Israel's history, God sent famine to them and pestilence because of their sin. And who bore the brunt of it really was the land. Land, I know you want to produce for them, but I'm not allowing you to produce for them because of their sin. The earth has suffered ever since the sin of Adam and Eve and has been used to punish man oftentimes since. All right, verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their, by their own way and, and their, by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a, re, of a removed woman. Therefore, I poured my fury upon them for blood for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen whither they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. We're going to look at this one a little bit because this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes... Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in the land, okay, they were there, they dwelt there, they defiled it by their own way and their own doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. And this talks about a woman in menstruation when they were unclean and were to be removed from God. He goes, they sinned so bad that it was sickening for him to even look upon them. He goes, they defiled the land with their idols and their worship. And then it says in verse 18, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed and for their idols wherewith they had polluted the land. When they came into Israel, into the promised land, they were told to get rid of all the idols, don't follow after those, the idol worshipers, and then it wasn't very long before they were following after those idols. And God would judge them and they would, they would repent and then they would follow after idols and then the God would judge them and they would repent. And they kept going and going and going. And God says, you've, you've polluted the land. Almost as bad as the Canaanites, uh, Jebusites, and, and, and all of those Hittites and all those other ones did. You've polluted the land with idols. you polluted it with your, 
your fornications and your adulteries and the homosexuality that was, was running rampant through them. He goes, you're just as bad as the people you replaced and I, and I have to judge you. And he brought on this judgment. He says, I scattered them from among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, according to the idols, uh, their doings, I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said, these are the people of the Lord and are gone out of his land. He says, they've been kicked out of the land. Now, this statement to me brings up a place that we're going to look at. I'm going to read something from Numbers chapter 14. Starting at verse 11. And this is coming after the people have rejected going into the promised land. They've rejected the spies. Uh, they've agreed with the spies and rejected going into the land. Verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it, will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed them? I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make the, you a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that you, Lord, are among his people, and that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by day as a pillar of cloud and, and a, a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you shall kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of you will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land which he swore unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken. The Lord is long-suffering and great mercy, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, and by no means clearing the, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Uh, so we look at this, and what was Moses' argument was the same exact thing that God says. God, if you kill all these people, your name will be brought into scorn. Because you, they will say, you did not have the power to deliver the people as you said you would. And here he's saying the same thing. I put you, I've put you into these foreign nations and now my name has been scorned because of the judgment I had to put on you. Nothing is worse for us as Christians than to have God have to punish us as a Christian and do what would take away a testimony from before people. And somebody who's a really strong Christian, the one thing that you can think of is that would really should break your heart is if you do something that brings shame to the name of Christ. When people look at you and instead of saying, well, that's what a Christian's supposed to go, well, that person's supposed to be a Christian. We see, we see how, what kind of God they follow. Bringing a shame to God's name. And you know what? God will oftentimes put us in punishment and let that shame because he can redeem that. He will redeem that shame as he's going to do in this story. He will be able to redeem. But he also says, I'm going to punish you. You're going to know that you cannot act the way that you've been acting. Israel, you've been sinning and you've ta taken my grace so far that I'm gonna, I am going to take the shame and then I will redeem that shame back. 
and restore you as a nation, restore the land as a, as a, as a habitat for my people. But in the interim, I'm going to bear the shame of your action. One of the things that got my dad to turn to God was the very fact that a Christian in his office had a pretty big sin and really fell flat, tore, tore up his, could have lost his entire testimony. He may ask God to forgive him and ask people who sought to forgive him. And it impressed my dad that this was something that was more than just a game. Sometimes when you are taken down, you may sh you're going to feel that shame for a long time. You're not going to get over it. It's going to be hard to get over. But God can still use that shame to attract other people. That, that, uh, because what are people looking for? They're looking for something that is going to get them through their hard times. And if all they ever see is a Christian being perfect, and this is not to go out and say, go out and do things wrong, but if all they ever see are Christians who do everything right, the very thought that's going to go through their mind is, I cannot do that. I cannot live that way. I cannot be that type of person. All right? Now, it doesn't mean we go out and we do lots of sins just so people will look at it. No. But when we do fall and we show that we are human, we repent. We may have to tell some people we're sorry. I'm really sorry. I was a bad example. I shouldn't have done that. Now, they may or may not accept it, but that's not the point of it. The point is to tell them that we are, we did not do what we're supposed to, and we know that we didn't do what we were supposed to. And we ask for forgiveness, and that impresses people. Not every single person. Some people will use it as a long-term, forever attack on you. Other people will go, hmm, they are, they are normal, but yet they have something that's still there. Their God didn't throw them away. They didn't throw God away when they fail. And it has an impact on people. But we have to be humble enough to say, you know what, I messed up. I, I, I've repented to God, and I'm going to ask your forgiveness as well. Most of us with our families have a hard time asking for forgiveness, especially of our kids. And sometimes that's exactly what it is. You know, I, was, I really messed up this last week, and I just want to ask your forgiveness because I did not act the way God wanted me to, to act. And it can be something that will be very powerful. Because again, if somebody sees somebody always doing the right thing, they're going, I can't do that. When they, when they see somebody fall and, and repent and still be following God, they will go, that's something I want. That's something I can do. If I fall, I want to know that I can be forgiven. And very important that we look at this and say, God will sometimes bring shame upon his children because they deserve it, but it also shames his name. But, you know, he's powerful enough to say, it will be redeemed. I will be blessed out of that, God says. We, we rebound through it, and God blesses us, and, and we get grace given to us and mercy given to us, and people see that we still have grace and mercy, and that we follow God, and it, that is what really draws people. The love of God toward his people and toward the world is what draws them to them. And the sad thing is, for, and I've said this so many times, mo even most Christians live a life like they're waiting for God to smash them for anything they do wrong. They're living in complete, utter terror of God. God, I just can't do anything because if I do it wrong, you are going to throw lightning bolts at me. You're going to hit me with a hammer. You're going to hit me with a baseball bat. You're going to pull the rug out from under me for trying. And as a consequence, they will do nothing because of their fear. And God's up there probably in tears saying, if you only knew how much I love you and the grace that I want to give you. And again, that doesn't mean go out and do things wrong just because, but 
You go out and do things and let God reach out and touch because he wants to be able to give us grace and mercy. He wants to show us his love. He wants us to go forward and, and have our flesh crucified so that he can live out through us. And we're going to get more into that. I love this chapter. This, is a, this chapter is a grace-oriented chapter, and we're, we'll be dealing with it again next week. But God wants to love us. And we need to really truly understand he is forgiving. He is gracious. He has not pushed us down and saying, you're going to stay under my thumb forever until you've learned your lesson. We're going, to, we're going to press you into this ground and put you six feet under until you learn your lesson. That's not God. He is the prodigal son's father, who the prodigal son starts coming home, and the father runs out and greets him and, and puts a new clothing on him and, and, and has the feast for him. That is our God, the God that loves us so much when we turn to come back to him, he grabs hold of us in a huge embrace and says, I love you, you're my child. Not, well, after, you, after you've served me as a servant for 15 years, we might think about letting you be, a, be, a, be my child again. That's not his attitude. And yet so many non-Christians especially, but even Christians, have that attitude. <clears throat> Okay, I've, I've messed up. How, God, how, how long do I have to serve you before I can come into your presence? And when we think about that as a really sad opinion, you know, we, if you had a child and your child said they're sorry and you showed show true repentance, <coughs> you would accept your child back. You'd, let, you'd give them that hug and say, I still love you. You're my child, at least if you're a parent worth anything. God is a parent that just loves us so much and when we repent, he grabs hold of us. And he carries us back up to where we're supposed to be and puts us right back where we're supposed to be and says, you're my child, here you go. Here is your grace and your mercy being shown to you and learn from this. Learn from this. I love you. If we truly started understanding God's love and mercy and forgiveness toward us, it would change the way we act and think toward other people. It would change the way we think, act and think about God. Because too many of us are afraid of going up, approaching God, afraid of doing anything, because we're afraid, like the servant who spent his, you know, took his one talent and hid it because he was afraid that he might lose it. And the and the, <coughs> the owner of the vineyard, you know, the owner said, you know, at least should have put it in the bank, and got interest for it. You know, do something. And God's saying, you know, could he have lost it in the bank? Sure, he could have lost it in the bank. But he's saying, do something. At least put it in the hands of professionals to deal with. And God's saying, do something with what I'm giving you and step forward. Learn about his love. Learn about his grace. And then pass those on to the, those around you. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we ask you to teach us more about how to live with you. Teach us more about grace and how to follow you in all that we're doing. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.